International labor law is about improving working conditions and guaranteeing rights at work. It is also called transnational labor law, and some refer to it as human rights at work. International labor law is a system of treaty commitments, recommendations, and guiding principles. These emerge out of a concern that global action is needed to tackle a problem related to the world of work. Thus, international norms ban forced labor, discrimination, the worst forms of child labor, unsafe conditions, and other undesirable practices relating to labor. International labor law guarantees basic principles such as freedom of association, collective bargaining rights, and it regulates the governance of the labor market through instruments that address institutions such as labor inspection, employment services, social security, and consultation between representatives of employers and workers. International labor law is part of international social and economic law and contributes to the development of human rights law. This includes some civil and political rights as well as economic and social rights. Moreover, International labor law is an important part of the social pillar of sustainable development. Respect for and exercise of rights at work can enable people to emerge from poverty. As Professor Virginia Leary once observed, the ILO approach to human rights has been to place them within the broader concept of social justice. International labor conventions and recommendations adopted by the International Labor Organization, the ILO, are the principal sources of transnational labor law. Other sources are labor provisions that are found in various human rights treaties, regional instruments, and some bilateral trade agreements. In recent years, soft law instruments, such as transnational labor agreements, and various forms of corporate social responsibility have appeared as complementary measures to treaty-based law. But the main producer of international law norms in the field of labor remains the ILO. Founded in 1919 as part of the peace treaty that ended World War I, the ILO became a specialized agency of the United Nations in 1946. By 2010, the ILO had adopted some 189 conventions and 200 recommendations, several of them revising earlier instruments. Of these totals, around 77 conventions and 84 recommendations are considered by the ILO to be up to date. The topics they cover include basic human rights, employment, social protection, labor administration, labor relations, training, protection of wages, hours of work, hours of rest, occupational safety and health, and protections for young persons at work. Some ILO instruments are devoted to particular categories of people, such as indigenous peoples or migrant workers, and earlier women workers, while other, other instruments are specific to a particular industry.
The ILO has developed unified mechanisms and procedures for supervising how all of these instruments are implemented. The ILO website is a rich source of information on ILO standards. Today, we will explore the development of international labor standards, their historical origin, how they are proposed and drafted in the ILO, their special legal features, and the main challenges that international standard setting has faced. In a separate lecture, I will touch upon how this specialized body of law has influenced public international law more generally. In particular, the law of treaties, human rights, and international environmental law, as well as the law of the sea. First, however, let us look briefly at the origins of international labor law. As industrialization began to transform economies, the question of how to address inequity and injustice in societies became a burning issue. In 19th century Europe, progressive employers and social reformers started to call for minimum international labor standards. With social conflicts increasingly shifting to the workplace, workers began organizing on an important scale. And this movement quickly gained a transnational dimension. In a parallel development, a group of individuals founded the International Association for Labor Legislation in 1900. Its purpose was to draft minimum labor standards. Under the auspices of this group, two international conventions were adopted in 1906, one prohibiting night work by women and the other banning the use of white phosphorus in the production of matches. The growing integration of the world economy at the beginning of the 20th century fueled support for such multilateral measures by representatives of both workers who sought better working conditions and protection against the adverse effects of unbridled market forces, and employers who thought that equalizing working conditions would help expand trade and remove distortions to competition. However, the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 brought a stop to these efforts. By the end of the war, labor conflicts had increased significantly, and when peace treaty negotiations began in 1919, the labor movement was keen to see recognition of the many sacrifices that workers had made during the war. The other key factor was the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which led to the establishment of the first state to pursue Marxist-Leninist ideology as an alternative to liberal economic and political regimes. Largely with these developments in mind, the Peace Conference in Paris established a Commission on International Labor Legislation, and it accepted the far-reaching proposals it made to create the International Labor Organization. This was accomplished by the adoption of Chapter 13 of the Treaty of Versailles. The rationale for the existence of the ILO and its unique structure as agreed in 1919 remain unchanged almost a century later. The preamble to the ILO Constitution 
sets out essentially three reasons for creating an international organization to address labor issues. First, it states that universal and lasting peace can be established only if it is based on social justice. Second, it links unacceptable conditions of labor, injustice and hardship to unrest that imperils peace and harmony. And third, the preamble notes that the failure of any nation to adopt humane conditions of labor is an obstacle in the way of other nations which desire to improve the conditions in their own countries. The main means that were envisaged for realizing the goals of the organization was the adoption and enforcement of international labor legislation. That is to say, the ILO conventions and recommendations that we refer to collectively as international labor standards. To understand how international labor standards are developed, it is essential to take into account the ILO's special structure. The Constitution establishes three organs, the International Labor Conference, the ILO governing body, and the International Labor Office. The office serves as the secretariat to the organization, and it is staffed by independent international civil servants who are led by an elected director general. They operate in accordance with decisions taken by the governing body and the conference. Both of these are tripartite. That means they are composed of representatives not only of governments, but as well of those of organizations of employers and workers. The inclusion of non-state actors in the governance of an international organization remains unique to the ILO and sets it apart from other institutions. The involvement of representatives of people directly involved in the world of work has colored both the means of adopting international labor conventions as well as their content and the supervision of their application. So how does standard setting in the ILO function? It begins with the identification of a problem which international legal action could help to solve. In this and other ways, the process in the ILO resembles other treaty-making initiatives. In other respects, however, ILO lawmaking procedures remain unique. As a first step in the ILO to do standard setting, the governing body examines proposals to place an item on the agenda of the International Labor Conference with a view to standard setting. These proposals may come from the International Labor Office or from one of the 56 members of the tripartite governing body. Whether or not the item will be included on the agenda of the conference is decided by the governing body. It takes decisions with equal votes for government, employer, and worker members, although its decisions are normally taken by consensus rather than voting. The governing body also determines whether there should be a single or a double discussion, that is, 
examination of a proposal over one or two sessions of the annual conference. The office then prepares a report on the law and practice in the various countries and appends a questionnaire that is drafted with a view to a possible convention, recommendation, or both. Here it draws on the research of the ILO and its Institute of International Labor Studies, as well as the ILO's information sources, which include labor statistics and databases of national and international labor law. Here I refer especially to NATLEX and ILOLEX, which are to be merged into a single database. A recommendation rather than a convention is proposed where the subject or an aspect of it is not considered suitable at the time for the adoption of a binding instrument. Recommendations provide non-binding guidance. Conventions, on the other hand, are treaties which, once ratified and in force, create binding obligations under international law for the parties to them. A convention may be accompanied by a recommendation on the same subject, and either a convention or a recommendation may be a standalone instrument. ILO standards set universally applicable minimum levels. The ILO Constitution specifies that the adoption of a convention or a recommendation cannot affect more favorable provisions that exist in a law, award, custom, or agreement. For all standard-setting exercises, the government of each of the ILO's 183 member states is requested to consult the most representative organizations of employers and of workers before the government finalizes its replies to the questionnaire that the office has prepared. In accordance with the standing orders of the conference, the office also consults the United Nations and other specialized agencies when a provision of a proposed instrument affects their activities. This helps reduce the risk of fragmentation in international law. On the basis of the replies received from governments, the office analyzes the comments and prepares a report summarizing them. If a single discussion is foreseen, the office prepares a draft convention, recommendation or both, for consideration by the conference. If there is to be a double discussion over two sessions of the conference, the office prepares draft conclusions for consideration by the conference at its first discussion. After it, the office sends a report to member states identifying issues on which further consideration by the conference is required. In the second year of a double discussion, the conference considers a proposed convention, recommendation, or both. If a single discussion has been envisaged, the conference starts out with a proposed instrument. Occasionally, such as in the maritime field, resort has been made to preparatory technical conferences prior to referring an item to the general conference uh, maritime session for adoption of an instrument. 
The International Labour Conference is composed of delegations from all ILO member states. Each delegation is tripartite, including representatives of the most representative organizations of employers and of workers in each country. In each delegation, two government delegates, one employer delegate and one worker delegate, have the right to vote. If there is no employer or worker delegate from a country, the other does not have voting rights. The delegation may also include advisors who can provide technical expertise. A credentials committee of the conference sets the quorum and handles challenges to the composition of delegations. Its work reinforces the effective exercise of freedom of association and strengthens democracy. The standing orders of the conference specify others who may attend the conference. These include representatives of invited non-governmental organizations at the international level, states invited as observers, and certain liberation movements. The involvement of the non-state actors representing workers and employers in shaping international labor standards is a key feature of the ILO system. Non-governmental organizations representing other interests have a more limited role in the conference, but they have influenced the content and con of conventions and of recommendations on issues ranging from indigenous peoples to maternity protection. The consideration of a draft text by the conference is speedy. The annual conference is short, currently runs about 14 days, some of them being devoted to political events. Under the standing orders of the conference, a technical committee is usually set up to examine the topic proposed for standard setting. It normally uses the office's report and its proposals as the basis for these discussions. The tripartite officers of the Technical Committee set a strict schedule for its members to submit amendments to the proposed text. The committee chair has considerable leeway in directing the debate, and the debate can become quite impassioned in view of the diversity of interests that are inherent in tripartite discussion. Sometimes committees set up working parties to hammer out compromises that are brought back to the plenary session for approval by the committee. If the committee agrees on a text, it is referred to the committee drafting committee, which is composed of one government, one employer, and one worker delegate, the committee's reporter, and the legal advisor of the conference. This com drafting committee makes sure that the text accurately reflects the decisions taken by the committee, taking into account ILO drafting practice. They also ensure that there is agreement between the French and the English versions of the texts, since both are equally authoritative. A manual for drafting ILO instruments has codified ILO practice in relation to the structure of ILO instruments, the use of certain terms, style, and gender-inclusive language, as well as flexibility clauses, a topic we will address shortly. The work of this drafting committee is referred back to the committee 
for approval. In order to be adopted, a convention or a recommendation must pass a high hurdle. It requires at least a two-thirds majority of the delegates registered and entitled to vote in plenary session. In other words, adoption requires a supermajority with a quorum requirement of the entire conference. A record vote is conducted electronically for each proposed instrument. The vote of each delegate is recorded in the conference proceedings. The high requirements for adoption underpin the universality of ILO standards. If a convention and or a recommendation is adopted by the conference in plenary, a conference drafting committee does a final review. The authentic texts are then signed by the president of the conference and the director general of the ILO. One copy of the instrument is placed in the archives of the ILO and the other is deposited with the Secretary General of the United Nations. Certified copies are sent to each member state. These states are then required under Article 19, Paragraph 5 of the Constitution to submit the instrument to the competent authority or authorities for the enactment of legislation or other action. This requirement of submission ensures that parliaments or other lawmaking bodies will be aware of the new instrument with a view to taking action on the topic. Since 1928, ILO conventions have included what are called standard final provisions. These cover questions like ratification, entry into force, denunciation, notification of ratification to members, communication to the United Nations, provisions regarding future revision of the instrument, and the language of the authoritative texts. Normally, two ratifications are required for entry into force of ILO conventions, but the conference has set the bar higher for some instruments. This occurs particularly in the maritime field where a minimum figure of ship tonnage is often required along with a greater number of ratifications. In terms of their content, many ILO conventions resort to what are referred to as flexibility devices. The basic idea behind them is to make standards flexible enough to be translated into a variety of systems of labor law and of labor relations in countries with different levels of economic development. Flexibility reflects the ILO's search for practical ways to promote universality and convergence in an unequal world. But the flexibility cannot be so extreme as to void standards of their function, which is, after all, to improve labor conditions. As former ILO Director General C. Wilfred Jenks noted, flexibility is not an end in itself. Flexibility devices do not apply to fundamental rights. The idea of flexibility is enshrined in the ILO Constitution, which calls for due regard to be given to countries where climactic conditions, 
the imperfect development of industrial organization or other special circumstances suggest that modification may be needed in framing ILO standards. Flexibility can take several forms. The first type of flexibility device involves the nature of the obligation itself. For example, the main requirement of some ILO conventions is merely to adopt a national policy on a specified subject, usually in or after consultation with organizations of employers and of workers. In another example of substantive flexibility, standards on minimum wages do not require member states to set a specified minimum wage. Rather, they call on states to create a system to fix minimum wage rates that are appropriate for a particular country or sector, taking into account the extent of coverage of collective bargaining agreements. Two recent innovations in standard setting should also be mentioned. <clears throat> These include the adoption of a promotional framework for occupational health and safety management and the Consolidated Maritime Labor Convention, which features a few core obligations that are supplemented by mandatory and non-mandatory provisions that then enter into greater detail. Aside from substantive flexibility, a second type of flexibility device permits a ratifying state to limit the scope of its obligation. This can be in relation either to the material scope, i.e. the subject matter, or the personal scope, i.e. the categories of persons or branches of economic activity concerned. Thus, in the field of Social Security, some instruments feature structural flexibility. They permit a state to accept only those parts of a convention that cover some branches of social security that the state chooses to designate upon ratification. States may also be able to exclude certain categories of economic activity or specified categories of workers from the scope of the obligation they undertake. This option is used, for instance, when a state would face practical difficulties of a substantial nature in applying all provisions of an instrument to all types of workers. Or, a convention may contain clauses that create exceptions in specified circumstances. Some of the ILO instruments on working time illustrate this type of flexibility. A further type of flexibility is shown by the Convention on Minimum Age for Entering Employment. It contains a provision that is to be temporary. A ratifying state whose economy and administrative facilities are insufficiently developed may initially specify a minimum age that is one year less than the minimum age set by the Convention. In most cases, there is to be consultation with representative organizations of employers and workers before such restrictions are communicated to the International Labor Office upon a country's ratification.
Finally, many ILO conventions offer wide scope as to the means by which ratifying states may implement them. For example, by legislation, collective agreement, court decisions. ILO conventions also often display flexibility in drafting, as expressed in definitions or in use of terms such as as appropriate. However, in contrast to other treaties, ILO conventions do not admit reservations. Instruments of ratification that contain them will not be registered by the Director General. It is argued that the flexibility devices make reservations superfluous. Moreover, the conference adopting an ILO convention is composed not only of states, but as well of representatives of employers and workers. They fall outside the traditional state-based regime for registering and objecting to reservations. In regard to reservations, it is worth noting that Article 5 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties refers to any relevant rules of an international organization in relation to treaties adopted within it. How can ILO conventions and recommendations be kept up to date? This was a concern for the organization from the beginning. The main method is by revision, i.e. the adoption of a new instrument that revises the earlier one in whole or in part. Sometimes protocols are used to revise a part of a convention or extend its scope. In addition, an amendment to the ILO Constitution that is nearing entry into force will empower the International Labor Conference to abrogate a convention that has lost its purpose or no longer makes a useful contribution to obtaining the goals of the organization. This will help um, abrogate very early conventions that did not contain automatic revision clauses. Over the years, the ILO and international standard setting have encountered some challenges. In the early years, for instance, the ILO's competence to regulate agricultural work was challenged. Its power to do so was confirmed through an advisory opinion of the Permanent Court of International Justice. This was just one of several such opinions that were sought from the PCIJ in relation to the ILO. As we know, the Second World War led to the demise of the League of Nations, but the ILO survived it. As the war was drawing to an end and plans for the United Nations were being laid, the ILO adopted the Declaration of Philadelphia, a landmark document that now forms part of the ILO Constitution. This declaration widened the ILO's vision in three important ways. First, it expanded the ILO's sphere of concern from labor issues to social issues. It did so by addressing all human beings and by declaring that poverty anywhere constitutes a danger to prosperity everywhere. Second, 
the Declaration of Philadelphia fleshed out the notion of social justice by stressing the importance of employment and social protection, while also reaffirming rights, especially freedom of association, and the continuing need to improve conditions of work. Third, the Declaration extended the institutional mandate to include additional types of action for the International Labor Organization. This included its role of evaluating and accepting other international and national policies, especially those of an economic and financial character, only insofar as they promote and do not hinder the achievement of the objectives of the ILO. In short, it stated the expectation that such other policies would not trump labor concerns and concerns for social justice. When the ILO became the first UN specialized agency in 1946, it retained its independent governance structures. These, of course, included its standard-setting mechanisms. Furthermore, the Declaration of Philadelphia affirmed that all human beings, irrespective of race, creed, or sex, have the right to pursue both their material well-being and their spiritual development in conditions of freedom and dignity, of economic security, and equal opportunity. The attainment of such conditions must constitute the central aim of national and international policy, the Declaration continued. This language laid the foundation for the decent work agenda being pursued today by the ILO. Decent work, the term which has been used since its introduction by the current Director General Juan Samavilla, strives to improve the opportunities for women and men to obtain decent and productive work in conditions of freedom, equity, security, and dignity. Decent work is the contemporary expression of the ILO's mandate of social justice. ILO standard setting faced further challenges with the rise of neoliberal economic thinking and its question of regulation in general. Questioning of regulation in general. In addition, the end of the Cold War occasioned a debate within the ILO of how standard setting could best contribute to progress. At the same time, the creation of the World Trade Organization in 1994 led to fresh demands from workers for a so-called social clause to link trade liberalization with minimum labor standards around the world. The World Summit for Social Development in 1995 highlighted certain standards as being particularly important. To make a long story short, a major outcome of these various discussions was adoption of the ILO Declaration on Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work in 1998. Under this declaration, by virtue of belonging to the ILO, 
all member states pledge to respect, promote, and realize these fundamental principles and rights. Freedom of association, effective recognition of the right to collective bargaining, as well as the elimination of all forms of forced or compulsory labor, child labor, and discrimination in employment and occupation. These fundamental principles apply whether or not the state has ratified the eight ILO conventions that deal with those topics. The Declaration also encouraged ratification of those instruments, and it spurred technical cooperation programs to help member states put the principles into practice. The fundamental ILO conventions have now been ratified by well over 90% of ILO members. But the accelerating pace of globalization and the persistence of inequalities led the ILO to adopt yet another declaration in 2008. This is the Declaration on Social Justice for a Fair Globalization. It calls for an integrated approach to pursuing the decent work agenda with simultaneous emphasis placed on employment, social protection, social dialogue, and fundamental principles and rights at work. The 2008 Declaration notes that the violation of fundamental principles and rights at work cannot be invoked or otherwise used as a legitimate comparative advantage. It also states that labor standards should not be used for protectionist trade purposes. This balanced declaration reaffirms the role of international labor standards in carrying out the ILO's mandate. It stresses the importance of governance in employment creation and social protection, and under it, the ILO is promoting ratification of a set of conventions that deal with governance issues, particularly labor inspection, employment policy, and tripartite consultation. Moreover, a discussion at the 2009 conference on placing gender at the heart of decent work highlighted the ILO instruments that are most pertinent to achieving equality between men and women. The need for ILO standards to keep pace with the changing roles of women and men in society has been a leitmotif of the organization since its founding. This was illustrated most clearly by a shift from early ILO instruments that banned women from engaging in night work to the adoption of a generally applicable instrument that restricts such work for all persons. In the ILO governing body, it is the Committee on Legal Issues and International Labor Standards that regularly discusses standards policy. One result of such discussions has been the integrated approach to standard setting. This involves including plans of action and sets of tools as part of a broader package. It must be acknowledged that the development of international labor law has not been without its critics. Some argue that 
certain ILO conventions are too detailed to attract significant numbers of ratification. Others claim that the ILO has erred by singling out some conventions over others for special promotional efforts. Some say that certain ILO standards are out of date or not sufficiently gender sensitive, or that ILO standards do not speak to the needs of people in the informal economy. In reality, the situation is far more nuanced, and the facts often reveal alternative conclusions. What is sure is that the ILO has been taking steps to keep its body of standards relevant to today's world. In recent years, more emphasis has been given to soft law instruments, such as recommendations, declarations, conference resolutions, and other documents, such as the ILO Multilateral Framework on Labor Migration, which contains non-binding principles and guidelines for a rights-based approach to labor migration. It complements existing ILO conventions on the topic. In addition, the adoption over the past few years of the Framework Convention on Occupational Safety and Health Management, the Innovative Consolidated Maritime Labor Convention, and a recent recommendation on HIV AIDS in the workplace illustrate the continued dynamism and usefulness of international labor standards setting. A current item under discussion for standard setting addresses decent work for domestic workers. In addition, aspects of international labor law are also addressed in several international human rights treaties outside the ILO. These include the International Covenants on Civil and Political Rights and on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, as well as the Conventions on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. Others that can be mentioned are the International Conventions on Persons with Disabilities and on Migrant Workers and Members of Their Families. These provide the main examples. ILO standards have often influenced the labor content of these instruments. It must be seen, recognized that while international labor rights and international human rights share certain content, only international labor law reflects the unique experiences of economic actors in the private sector as well as the policies of governments. International labor law can be seen as encompassing even more sources of law. Several regional integration arrangements contain a social dimension. By far the most extensive of these is found in Europe, but some expression of labor, labor policy has been adopted in every region, and several have human rights instruments that contain labor clauses. In addition, several bilateral trade agreements include provisions calling for the respect of certain labor rights. Moreover, private sector initiatives of various types act as complementary sources of transnational labor law. In some sectors, international labor federations 
have concluded transboundary collective agreements with large employers. Some multi-stakeholder multi initiatives have developed guidelines for ethical or fair trade that incorporate labor standards. Within the United Nations, the Global Compact brings together companies that pledge to respect principles that include those on freedom of association, collective bargaining, and the elimination of forced labor, child labor, and discrimination. In addition, certain industries and firms have developed their own codes of conduct or other corporate social responsibility policies that sometimes include labor rights. Some incorporate these into supply chain management and or their due diligence practices. Some are dismissed as little more than advertising ploys, but credible private sector initiatives may take inspiration from two non-binding multilateral declarations on multinationals as well as ILO standards. These declarations are the ILO Tripartite Declaration of Principles concerning multinational enterprises and social policy and the OECD Multinationals Declaration and Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises. These so-called soft law initiatives do not have the same status or legal effect as international treaties such as ILO conventions or human rights instruments, but they do have a role to play. Their emergence, along with new developments in ILO standard setting, reflect the dynamic nature of transnational labor law. The ILO itself has moved from its original position of seeing standards as the means of achieving social justice to understanding them as one of the main tools for doing so. With globalization and technological advance speeding up change in how work is organized, and with poverty and social inequality remaining so persistent around the world, the development of international labor law is sure to continue to evolve in the future. Global economies need global rules. International labor standards are a key element for fair globalization. How ILO standards are used, their relevance to development, and mechanisms for the supervision of their implementation will be addressed in the next lecture. Thank you.